Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. I'm Drew Von Sio. It's a great day on this Friday afternoon. Let's get right into it, starting with the Pittsburgh Penguins and looking at the differences between their top six forwards and the bottom six, along with the production that's really going to be needed from that bottom six this season. Now, looking at it from the perspective of Evgeny Malkin being out the first portion of the season, obviously the first line isn't really going to change much in the way of Sidney Crosby, Jake Gensel, Brian Rust. The second line shouldn't have much variation either. It will still be Jason Zucker on one wing, Kasperi Kapanen on the right wing. Now, it's that bottom six where things start to get a bit dicey because in reality, it could go any sort of way. If you look at the Penguins roster, there's so much uncertainty, if you would say that, in terms of how things stand now. And there's so many different combinations that they could use. You have someone like Zach Aston Reese who could play on the third or fourth line depending upon where things fall and how they fall into place. Anthony Angelo, once again, someone that could be on either wing. Teddy Bluger, more than likely going to man that third line center position while Malkin is out. Once he be, he being Malkin returns, then Bluger, of course, would drop down to his traditional spot on the fourth line. But then you have players like Danton Heinen, Sam Lafferty, Brock McGinn, Drew O'Connor, Evan Rodriguez, Dominic Simone, and Redeem Sohorna, who can all make up those final positions on the third and fourth line. Of course, Evan Rodriguez more than likely being the center of that fourth line with Evgeny Malkin being out would more than likely be the first man out of the lineup when Malkin returns. But with the uncertainty in that bottom six, you, I know what you're thinking. The top six is going to have to carry in terms of producing and scoring. But it's not going to be acceptable to have it be that way this season. When the Penguins were in their Stanley Cup runs 2016-2017, even 2018, when they still had players like Nick Benino, Phil Kessel, that third line did not have as big of a gap in it in terms of talent between them and the top six forwards. But since 2018, we have seen the third and fourth line continue to slide away from the first and second in terms of widening that gap of talent, which is going to happen in a sense because not every team is going to be built like the Penguins back-to-back cup teams were built where they have an overwhelmingly large amount of depth and their third line is going to be better than some teams' second lines. But those bottom six really have to now step it up in terms of their ability to produce both offensively and defensively, but in this situation, more on the offensive side of things, finding the back of the net, being creative with the puck, and even if they're not producing for other players on their line, when they might be in the midst of a line change, it could be them setting up someone from the first line. If Brock McGinn is out there when Crosby's already taken off Teddy Bluger, then it needs to be McGinn finding a way to set up Sidney Crosby. If it's Danton Heinen out there and Jake Gensel has found his way onto the ice 
in the middle of the line change. It needs to be Danton Heinen finding a way to set up Jake Gensel because we all know that Jake Gensel and Sidney Crosby can set up plenty of goals. But what we don't know is that third line and that fourth line, how well they are at producing goals. So, again, that bottom six going to be very important this season for the Penguins, especially in the beginning of the season when Jeff Carter is going to be manning that second line. And speaking of Jeff Carter, his expectations as the second line center are going to be much more than what they were last season after the Penguins acquired him. I mean, you're not just talking about a second-line center on any team in the NHL. You're talking about being a second-line center for the Pittsburgh Penguins, filling a role that Evgeny Malkin has had essentially since he joined the organization. You're behind Sidney Crosby in terms of being second-best center on the team. There's a lot more involved in that than just manning the third line. And again, I know the third line is important, so when I say just the third line, I don't necessarily mean it in a degrading way towards the third line, but there's a huge jump between the third and the second line, especially when now Jeff Carter is going to be manning the power play unit, or at the very least, be on one if he's not on that top unit like Evgeny Malkin was and they throw another winger up there with Crosby, Gensel, Rust, etc Carter at the very least will be on the second power play unit because of his goal scoring threat and so if he is put on that second unit he's going to be expected to not only be a major part of it but lead it as well And at 36, 37 years old, Jeff Carter is certainly more than capable of being a leader, but can he handle that in terms of the pressure? We haven't seen Jeff Carter in this role in quite some time with having such a big responsibility since his younger days as a member of the Los Angeles Kings, and that was six, seven, maybe even eight years ago when he was on the younger side of 30, right in his prime, and now that he's beyond that, it's going to be a bit of an adjustment for him. Obviously, leadership skills don't go away overnight for someone like Jeff Carter, but it's certainly going to be a bit of a task for him to try and reestablish himself get himself back into that feeling of actually being a leader on the power play unit when that's something he hasn't been doing over the past maybe three or four seasons of his career, and especially not since he's joined the Penguins. He may have been on the second power play unit from time to time, but he was never expected to lead it. But now with Malkin being out, someone possibly sliding up to the first unit to take Malkin's spot. Now that opens up a spot on the second unit consistently, something that Jeff Carter can take advantage of and once again take that step forward and have some leadership on that second power play unit. And then just thinking about the Penguins and this upcoming season, Obviously, things have not gone well for the team the past three seasons in the playoffs. And I'm not going to throw in 2018 into this because the Penguins, they were just coming off of back-to-back Stanley Cup winning runs, had played 82 games, had won the first round of the playoffs, and then ultimately just, I feel like, ran out of gas in that second round against the Washington Capitals. So I'm not including that. But if you look at 2019, they were swept by the Islanders in four games. In 2020, up in the bubble in Montreal, they lost 
that series in a best of five to the Montreal Canadiens. The worst team in the playoffs in 2020 eliminated the Penguins in four games. And then, of course, 2021, Tristan Jari ultimately costing the Penguins in that series, which they should have easily handled the Islanders. But nonetheless, the Penguins didn't move on. So there has to be a bit of pressure now on Mike Sullivan, on the Penguins organization as a whole, obviously starting with Ron Hextall, but all the way up to Mario Lemieux. Because let's face it, Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, they're not getting any younger. And when you have these three players that are considered your core, and you continue to blow opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to win possibly one more Stanley Cup with them, it really starts to make you wonder what's going wrong with the team. Obviously, Mike Sullivan is a great coach because he gets the Penguins to the playoffs every single year and puts them in a great position to host the first round of the playoffs. And as we saw in 2021, even winning the realigned Eastern Division. But why can Mike Sullivan not have that same success when it comes time for the playoffs? Is it his refusal to make changes in terms of lines? Is it an in-game decision where he's relying too heavily on his top two forward forward lines and ultimately gassing them sooner than what they should be? Obviously, we know last season he refused to go to Maxime Lagasse, when Tristan Jari continued to falter, which I would have argued then Lagasse should have been given an opportunity because, let's face it, he couldn't have done worse than what Tristan Jari did. That's for absolute certainty. And we've always known that Mike Sullivan is a bit of a stubborn coach. So my question is, how much longer... Do we give Mike Sullivan to try to figure things out and win another Stanley Cup with Crosby, Malkin, and Latang? Because the organization and the fans are going to get very tired of, if they're not already, going into the first round after a very successful regular season and then ultimately completely collapsing. And again, it's not that Mike Sullivan isn't a great coach in the regular season because the Penguins do extremely well. They battled through so much adversity last year in terms of injuries and having multiple key players out at one time, which is, of course, a credit to the man behind the bench. But if you're not having success in the playoffs, What does it matter if you make them every year? If you can't go deep into the playoffs, what does the regular season even count for at that point other than being able to say, well, we still had a strong regular season? Did you get anything out of it? If you did, great. Then it was worth it. If you didn't, then something's got to change. Even if the Penguins got to the Eastern Conference Final or the Stanley Cup Final, Yes, you're still not winning the Stanley Cup, but you're in a situation where you're just one to five, maybe one to six wins away from doing that. If you're losing in the first round, like the Penguins have been, you're multiple series away from getting to that point, which is where I question now Mike Sullivan and his coaching philosophy in the playoffs. We saw in 2019 how Barry Trotz clamped down the Penguins and caused that sweep in terms of the style of play that Barry Trotz used with the trap. And Mike Sullivan could not figure it out. 
could not make the adjustments to counter it. We ran into that again in 2021 with the Islanders. The Penguins were finding ways to score here and there, but then, of course, the goaltending let them down. It still wasn't perfect in terms of beating Barry Trotz tactically, which, again, is concerning because the Penguins took six out of eight games in the regular season against the New York Islanders. How do you take six out of eight games in the regular season against someone and then lose four out of six in the playoffs? Obviously, atrocious goaltending aside, it's the same team with the same tactics. Barry Trotz does not switch things up in the playoffs just for the sake of switching things up. He runs the same system for his team. But for some reason, Mike Sullivan can't adjust to it. And so, if this continues to be a pattern for Mike Sullivan, then I have to question how much longer he gets behind the bench. Because Evgeny Malkin is 35, Sidney Crosby's 34, Chris Letang is right in there as well. You can't sit around and just continue to say, well, he'll work through it, we'll get things sorted out, and we'll make another Stanley Cup run. Because your time continues to wind down. Which means now that, that there's even more pressure on the Penguins organization. There's even more pressure on Mike Sullivan to get it right and get it right now. And if he can't do that, then you've got to bring in someone who can. And again, not just in the regular season, in the playoffs as well. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. It's Pirates Baseball Talk when we come back in just a few minutes right here on BBN Online Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to this Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, taking a look at what's going on with Gregory Polanco and putting last night kind of on the back burner for right now. It was Wednesday night when the Pirates were in the midst of the series with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and a ball managed to get through Polanco's legs, and then he ultimately, in trying to retrieve it, kicked it further away from him, which led to more issues in the outfield. Now, that night, Polanco went two for four at the plate. So he he didn't have the worst day at the plate. He's certainly had much worse. But it was, again, his defensive miscue that hurt the team. And, of course, not very many fans in attendance at PNC Park that night. But they were certainly letting him have it with chance, comments, you name it, it was probably said. And Polanco spoke about it yesterday, mentioning that he heard it all. He understood that the fans were frustrated. He isn't happy with his performances this season whatsoever. But the thing that I took away the most from it all was when Polanco was being interviewed and he's talking about it and he said, look, I'm human too. I use baseball to put food on my plate, put a roof over my head. I'm out here trying. And I know it's such a common bandwagon to jump on when you watch Polanco play to say, oh, he's not even trying out there. And it's not that he's not trying because every single baseball player out there is going to try. But Polanco just, he has something different about him where his 100% doesn't look to be 100% on camera. Now, Derek Shelton obviously throwing him back into the lineup last night had a great performance at the plate last night in the comeback win over the St. Louis Cardinals. Nothing too extravagant defensively, but we saw him go three for five last night with two RBIs. Now, of course, Polanco did have a pair of strikeouts in his line as well, but the significance of his three hits were the storyline last night. And I credit Derek Shelton for his decision to stick with Polanco. And then I also credit Polanco for having that short memory and being able to turn it around very quickly. Baseball is 90% a mental game. And so for Polanco to be able to turn it around as quick as he did shows not only his ability to forget things that are affecting him negatively, but then also take things just a day at a time and go out there, have three hits, drive in a pair of runs, and help your team come back from a four-run deficit and then not only help them come back, but tack on four more runs in addition to that. And, you know, so many people that you see on social media or just members of the fan base in general, they call for the Pirates to play somebody over Polanco because supposedly he's blocking someone from getting playing time. My question is, 
who is Polanco blocking at this point? He's surely not blocking any major prospect. The biggest prospect in the outfield down in AAA Indianapolis was Travis Swaggerty, and he got injured early in the season and has missed the remainder of this 2021 season. So you can't say he's blocking Travis Swaggerty from getting playing time in Pittsburgh. You can't throw Cole Tucker into this when, first of all, Cole Tucker isn't even a natural outfielder. Second of all, Cole Tucker is just as bad of a hitter as Polanco, if not worse. And then you're going to throw him into the outfield just to justify not playing Gregory Polanco? That's not how it works. O'Neill Cruz is still down in... I believe he's still... Yeah, he's still at double A. had just came off of the injured list. So he's a ways away from making it to the major leagues. Of course, there's Jared Oliva. But Jared Oliva, again, hasn't shown his consistency at the plate. Fine defensively, but he can't put the ball in play on a routine basis. There's absolutely no one on the 40-man roster right now for the Pirates that can take over right field for Gregory Polanco. Obviously, the Pirates will have to figure something out for next year because Polanco isn't coming back. We all know that. But to say that Polanco is blocking someone from getting playing time is just outrageous and trying to find a way, any way, to justify not playing Gregory Polanco. And the thing is, Polanco, and I hate to bring money into this, but Gregory Polanco this season is making a total of $11 million. The Pirates tried putting him on waivers to get, hopefully, a playoff contender to take a shot at him, and it didn't work. That would have been the only way the Pirates would have gotten Polanco's salary off of their books. If they designated him for assignment, they still pay him the remainder of his salary, which is, at this point, just over $2 million. He obviously can't be optioned to trip away, and they're not just going to completely release him. And so I just don't understand completely the frustration amongst Pirates fans. This team is 34 games under 500. I get that it's a frustrating season. I get that the Pirates don't even have 50 wins and we're at the end of August. I understand that. But Polanco is not the entire problem. And acting like he is, is just absolutely ridiculous. Of course, we all know Polanco never lived up to the potential that everybody supposedly saw in him in the Pirates organization under Neil Huntington. We all clearly know that. He's battled injuries. He's had defensive miscues. He's flailed the bat a lot of the times at the plate, so much so that he primarily doesn't even play against left-handed pitchers when they start. Of course, Polanco having that great year in 2018, leading the team in home runs. And just thinking back to that season and watching Polanco play when being healthy was perfectly sound in the outfield, just crushing baseballs. You thought finally that was when he was going to turn the corner and was finally going to live up to that hype that was surrounding him for his entire times through the minor leagues and then even when he got to Pittsburgh. And it just never worked out. And 
So again, the Pirates, they're not going to part ways with him at this point to try and save the season. There's nothing to save in this season at 47 and 81. They're not going to part ways with him to get somebody else playing time because there's nobody in the minor leagues that's knocking on the door trying to take his spot. You might as well just let him finish out the season, have one last month of baseball in Pittsburgh, and then you part ways with him in the offseason, sign someone to take over in right field if you don't believe Travis Swaggerty is going to be ready for opening day. If you do, then by all means throw Travis Swaggerty out there in right field. But if you can't, then you sign someone that is a an experienced veteran in free agency. Of course, Michael Chavis has the ability to play some outfield, to my knowledge, but the Pirates are certainly going to rely on him more in the infield. He's more than likely going to be the team's starting second baseman in 2022 when the Pirates host the Cardinals on opening day. So if he's focused primarily on the infield, they're not going to throw him out in the outfield just to have him out there. So, again, there's nobody that Polanco is blocking to need to insist on him not playing. And then, in regards to Derek Shelton, the one thing that I will say about Derek Shelton, regardless of your opinion, he does stand up for his players, whether it's on the field or through press conferences, he stands behind his players, which is exactly what you want out of a manager. He's gotten thrown out of multiple games, arguing and supporting his players. But the one thing that I will say is that I question if at times he doesn't support them too much. And I'm sure your first thought is, how is it possible to support someone too much? Well, like I was saying just 10, 15 minutes ago about Mike Sullivan with the Penguins, Derek Shelton, in my opinion, gives guys too many opportunities to try and redeem themselves. If they have a bad night at the plate, most coaches would say, okay, I'm throwing you back out here, and if you don't get at least this many hits or whatnot, or have, if you don't have a successful night at the plate, then you're going to the bench. That's how Clint Hurdle handled things. Derek Shelton will send someone out there three, four nights in a row and try and figure things out. And I get that the Pirates are in a rebuild, so maybe they're not entirely focused on the negative results of that guy going out there four or five nights in a row. But when you're getting 20 to 25 at-bats and you're coming out of there three for 20, four for 23, it's not a good look whatsoever, and it's a negative reflection on Derek Shelton. And then, of course, with Shelton, his pitching usage. I understand JT Brubaker this season has been cursed by giving up home runs. But there are so many times, or there were so many times, that Brubaker was pitching absolutely fine between 70 and 75 pitches, and here comes Derek Shelton out to pull him in the sixth inning. Why? Why are you pulling someone at 73 pitches through five and two-thirds when they've given up one run on four hits? It does not make sense at all. And I know, I know, the analytics say that pitchers like Brubaker, they struggle more through the third time of the order, but you wait until that happens to make a move. You don't just 
pull him because the, the third time through the order is coming up. If Brubaker can work through it, then you let him work through it. If you want to have somebody getting loose down in the bullpen just to be safe, by all means do so. But to make the pitching change is often what hurts the Pirates because then they bring in someone like Kyle Keller, who at this point shouldn't even be on a major league roster, and he's still getting opportunities. And then he comes in and gets absolutely shelled, and in the blink of an eye, the Pirates go from winning a game 4-1 to now being down 6-4. Which is, again, where I was talking about with Derek Shelton, continuing to give guys a bit too much of backing because, for whatever reason, Kyle Keller continues to be on the Major League roster. When he has not pitched up to par with what the Pirates need. And it's not even a matter of, well, he's someone who's young that we're going to take a chance on. He's 28 years old. There's nothing there. So unless you're using him as your, for lack of better words, tank commander, like you did with Miguel Del Pozo last year, there's no purpose of him being on this major league roster. There has to be someone down in AAA who can pitch better than him. Even if it's not the biggest name, give them an opportunity out of the bullpen, whether it be someone like Shea Spitzbarth, who we saw a flash of here and there a couple of times within the past couple of weeks. Have Max Kranick go out of the bullpen he had some struggles in the rotation, but allow him to build that confidence. There's just so many players that the Pirates could be using over Kyle Keller. And it's just frustrating that Derek Shelton continues to go to them. And we'll see how things change with Shelton. But at this point, I don't see him being a manager for the Pirates when things start to go well. And... They're pushing for the playoffs. I hope I'm wrong. I hope things change, but that's how I see things right now. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Final segment coming up in just a few minutes, looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers, taking a highlight, or rather looking at the highlights of the final preseason game for them tonight, and along with the offensive line being the key to their success, Right here on BBN Online Radio.
Welcome back, everyone, for the final segment, taking a look at the Steelers and their final preseason game tonight. Dwayne Haskins getting the start for the Pittsburgh Steelers at quarterback. Now, the thing with Haskins getting this start, Mike Tomlin said earlier in the week, Ben Roethlisberger, Mason Rudolph not playing. And, of course, because it's a popular thing for Steelers fans to hate on Mason Rudolph, they see this as Mike Tomlin giving Haskins the opportunity to prove himself as Ben Roethlisberger's backup. But what they don't realize is that Mason Rudolph isn't playing tonight because he solidified that role as Ben's backup to start the season. If Mike Tomlin truly wanted Dwayne Haskins to potentially surpass Mason Rudolph on the depth chart, he would have Rudolph playing tonight as well. You don't sit somebody in an in a hope that the guy who's starting surpasses them on the depth chart. You just don't. If it was still a competition, Rudolph would be playing tonight, more than likely starting. Seeing now that Rudolph is not playing, it's clear that he's QB2. At this point, it's between Haskins and Josh Dobbs for the third-string position. Whether you like it or not, Mason Rudolph, to start the season, is the backup quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. There's no doubt about it. He would be playing tonight if there was any question of that. It's between Haskins and Dobbs, who is third string. Of course, when we get to the regular season, that can change. But at this very moment, Mason Rudolph is the backup to Ben Roethlisberger. And it's between Haskins and Dobbs to see who that final quarterback is on the Steelers roster that most likely will not dress in regular season action because the Steelers typically only dress to quarterbacks on game days. So for Haskins tonight, you could argue that he is playing for a roster spot. You really could, because if he goes out there tonight, plays terribly, and Dobbs even does remotely average, I would expect the Steelers to keep Dobbs as the third-string quarterback and ultimately end the Dwayne Haskins era in Pittsburgh. So many fans and even members of the Pittsburgh media want Mason Rudolph traded. So many of them want Mason Rudolph cut. He's not going anywhere. He's the only quarterback on the roster who is under control, team control, for next season. Big Ben is not. Dwayne Haskins is not. And Josh Dobbs is not. Mason Rudolph is. They are going to give Mason Rudolph the first opportunity to take the reins when Ben Roethlisberger retires. There is no question about it. Whether you like it or not. Dwayne Haskins could get that opportunity if he proves tonight that he deserves to make the roster. But if that doesn't happen, then the Steelers will keep Dobbs. Dobbs is obviously going to be a career backup for the Steelers. And they will give Rudolph that opportunity to take over completely when Ben Roethlisberger retires. If it doesn't work out with Rudolph, then they draft somebody in the first round. But they will not trade Mason Rudolph. 
They will not cut Mason Rudolph for someone like Dwayne Haskins, who is essentially a reclamation project trying to get his head on him straight. And looking at things from the offensive perspective, the Steelers' offensive line this year is going to be the key for their success. It's not about if Ben can show that his arm is even better than it was last year. It's not about Juju and Claypool. Can they focus on football and not TikTok? Like so many boomers who are Steelers fans believe. The key for the Steelers this season, offensively, is their offensive line. Kendrick Green is going to be the starting center. It's an opportunity for him right out of the draft to show his ability that he can be the starting center for the Steelers this season and beyond. Kevin Dodson, coming into his second season, is going to be one of the more experienced members of the offensive line at left guard. They have then Trey Turner at right guard, who hasn't been the most productive, but has been serviceable. Left tackle more than likely will be Dan Moore Jr., who has been phenomenal, and then Zach Banner at right tackle. Zach Banner was supposed to be the starting right tackle last season, tore his ACL, so there's uncertainty with him. There's uncertainty with Trey Turner. He hasn't had the best preseason. We don't know what he's going to bring in the regular season. Kendrick Green has looked great so far in the preseason, but again, we don't know how that's going to hold up over 16, now 17, regular season games. And then the same goes for Dan Moore Jr. Yes, he's looked fantastic in preseason, but will that carry over? Kevin Dodson is the only one on the Steelers' projected offensive line that we saw in Pittsburgh last year and how he performed. So if this offensive line can find a way to create holes for Najee Harris or any of the running backs behind him, if they can find a way to keep Ben Roethlisberger standing upright, then the Steelers are going to be fine offensively. Matt Canada is going to recreate the Steelers' offense. We've seen that already in the preseason with going back to play action, a lot of motion pre-snap, just like he had at Pitt under Pat Narduzzi. It worked well there, and it's going to work well here at the NFL level, just a matter of fine-tuning some things and making that adjustment between college ball and pro ball. But the offensive line, again, is going to be the key for the Steelers. There's a reason why the Steelers moved on from David DeCastro. Not just because he's getting older and possibly wasn't healthy, but because he didn't have it last year. David DeCastro was an offensive line liability for the Steelers. He wasn't as good as he was in the past. He was starting to decline with his performance. And so when you see him in that situation, you know there's limited amount of opportunities to try to win with Ben Roethlisberger. Again, you just have to move on. And now we see DeCastro ultimately retiring. Marquise Pouncey in the same boat. Just didn't have it anymore. Ultimately called it a career. Alejandro Villanueva was atrocious for the Steelers in 2020, 2021 rather. No, I take that back. It was 2020. My dates are all running together. Alejandro Villanueva atrocious in 2020. The Steelers quickly moving on from him in the offseason and passing him on to the Baltimore Ravens. Now, that was by far one of the greatest things I've heard in the offseason was Villanueva signing in Baltimore. 
not only did we get him out of our offensive line, but now he's going to Baltimore, who we play twice a year, and he has the fun now of trying to stop T.J. Watt, Alex Highsmith, or Melvin Ingram for 60 minutes of a football game. Good luck with that one, Villanueva. So, yes, the Steelers' offensive line is young. Yes, there's a lot of uncertainty that goes along with it. But the big thing this season, whether it be good or bad, it's about getting the inexperienced experience. Kendrick Green, even Kevin Dotson, Dan Moore Jr., Zach Banner, and Trey Turner, who doesn't have experience in Pittsburgh but has the overall success in the league. It's an opportunity for them all to get experience working with each other and finding some consistency for the Steelers' offensive line that wasn't there last season. And it ultimately hurt the run game, ultimately hurt the passing game because none of them could pass block either. And yes, the run game was an issue, which is why the Steelers, excuse me, went out and got Najee Harris. But the offensive line certainly was a problem as well. And it's a credit to the Rooney family, general manager Kevin Colbert, and head coach Mike Tomlin for recognizing those issues and going out and saying, you know what? We're not just going to take care of one and hope that the other sorts itself out too. We're going to kill two birds with one stone, draft a rookie running back in Najee Harris, revamp our offensive line, make it much younger, bring in some new faces, so that now it's a fresh start for everyone and they can they being the Steelers organization, can try to reestablish themselves in the run game and provide Ben Roethlisberger with the protection that he absolutely deserves in his final years as a Steeler. And I say years because, again, we don't know how much longer Ben is going to be. Has not indicated that this will be his final one, but would, of course, need to sign a new contract at some point this season or in the offseason to stay in Pittsburgh for 2022 and beyond. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, thank you all for tuning in today here on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Hope you have an opportunity to go out and get some sun when you're not in classes or at work. I would like to update you all that there may or may not be a show on Monday as my soccer season is currently underway. We have a scrimmage scheduled for 4 o'clock at Penn State New Kensington. If I am partaking in that scrimmage game, then the next show will be Friday at 3 o'clock, one week from today. If by some chance I do not partake in that scrimmage, then I will be right back here in the studio on Monday. Be sure to check the Twitter handle for the official Twitter handle for the Three Rivers Talk Show for updates. It's at Three Rivers Talk. Again, updates on the status of Monday's show can be found on Twitter at Three Rivers Talk. This is Drew Von Silo saying, Have a great weekend, everybody, and I will see you at some point next week, whether it be Monday or Friday.